Okay. Yeah, eight minutes of announcements is enough for anybody. Uh, don't you love long weekends? I can tell who loves long weekends. The people who usually sit over here. Because this is a little, no, it's filled in a little bit. That's great. But um, this side over here is like, I mean, can you see, but man, we got it packed over here. This is happening over here. Um, but I, do, do you love long weekends? Don't you think the 4th of July should always be somewhere on one side or other of a weekend? Wouldn't that make more sense? Um, but anyway, uh, on Friday, we celebrated our nation's independence and the liberties that we enjoy. And I hope you took some time to celebrate and to really think about um, what your freedom means. And we took some time last Sunday to talk about freedom, to talk about our freedom as a nation and our freedom as individuals, our freedom um, as Christians, and about the responsibility that comes along with all that. That was last week. Now, since last Sunday... The United States Supreme Court wrapped up its session, and on Monday they came down with a somewhat controversial ruling that seemed to land on the side of religious liberty. And I'm not going to talk about that this morning. I just did, but that's all I'm going to say about that. But I do want to talk about this uneasy tension between the church and politics, or between the church and government, or maybe a broader picture between the church and culture. Some of you maybe are confused about what we do here and why we do what we do and why we don't do what we don't do sometimes. And maybe it's a little bit confusing for you since for most of the life of this church, um, Pastor Bob has been in elected office. We launched Faith Community in the summer of 1997 and Dad was elected to his first term on the Ellsworth City Council that, later that year in the fall of 1997. During his second term on council, he was elected to the main state house, and I have a picture to prove it, and uh, see if you can pick him out. Um, it's, this is one of those pictures that's easy to tell which term it's from, because, well, I just remember where he sat, but uh, did you find him yet? Right there. So uh, this, is, this is third term. So he, he's, he was elected to, you see him now? He was, well, actually, let's show the next picture, because here he is in the leader corner, um, addressing uh, the chamber. So he, he was elected to the Maine State House in 2002, served three terms, rose to leadership in, in the legislature in his last term. And after a few years away from elected office, now he's back on city council because he just can't help himself. And, uh, but we're grateful to have people like my dad serving in these offices. And those are the kinds of people we want to elect to represent us. So he's serving his fourth term on city council. I've never had any interest in elected office, but I do have a few opinions on politics. Anybody with me on that one? Okay. There's a word for people like us. I just don't know what it is. But I'm usually not afraid to share my opinions in certain settings, which might be confusing at times when it comes to what we do as a church, when it comes to political issues. Um, I'm sure we have people leave our church over this. We've had people get mad about it because these things get so emotionally charged. And I'll tell you what, I try my best to be an equal opportunity offender. I love to offend Republicans and Democrats and Libertarians and Independents and liberals and conservatives. I just, it's, it's just fair game for me. And I think because of dad, maybe because of dad's public service and maybe because sometimes I might voice an opinion that I think sometimes people have expected us to address certain topics from here, from this podium. That as a church, we would take a position. 
I remember a few years ago um, during a Sunday, it was during some political season, I can't remember what was going on, um, don't remember what the issue was, but dad was preaching on a Sunday and I was kind of out in the lobby at one point. I noticed uh, during the service that a vehicle was leaving the parking lot. And, uh, but when I looked around, I noticed that there were flyers on all of the cars in the lot. And I can't remember what the issue was, but I do remember that I happened to agree with the position taken by the flyers on the cars. But as quickly as I could, I removed every flyer from every car and I took them directly to the dumpster. Because we've been very intentional about keeping this setting as free from political positioning as possible. And I think that's been confusing at times because dad's been like super involved in politics and I do my best to know what's going on and to have a somewhat informed opinion. I love to have discussions with people about that. But so maybe it's confusing when we refuse to bring that into this environment. Now, maybe for some of you, your church experience has been in churches that are against everything. (laughs) You came up through church thinking that that's what Christians do. We're just opposed to everything. And, And I spent some time in the Bible Belt myself during my teen and college years. And man, churches there took their political activity seriously. I mean, they're against everything. You ever been there? Ever lived through that in that setting? I mean... They were against emancipation. They were against women having right, uh, constitutional rights to vote. They were against the civil rights movement. They're against the lottery, of course. If I remember right, they were opposed to the Rubik's Cube and the Muppets and <laughs> Cabbage Patch dolls. And I'm not even joking. Look up, look up. Fundamental Church's Bible Belt Cabbage Patch dolls. Google it. I'm not even kidding. They had bumper stickers and flyers and brochures. And every time you would turn around, these churches would find something else to be against and something else to boycott. And I knew a lot of people like this for a while. I was, was one of them. And I know their intentions are good. And I didn't, agree, didn't disagree with their theology. But they're always positioned against, you know, whatever. And somewhere along the way, I decided that I don't want to spend the rest of my life as a Christian just being against everything in culture and against everything on the other side of a political aisle. And I got connected with some people in some relationships about 20 years ago who stretched my thinking, and I read some stuff, and I heard some speakers, and I had some experiences that stretched my thinking. And I began to read Scripture with fresh eyes, and especially the Gospels and the book of Acts and Paul's letters, and it occurred to me that neither Jesus nor Paul positioned themselves against everything in culture or even in their very corrupt governments, or even the Roman Empire. In fact, the only thing that those two were constantly against was that group of people on the religious side of the aisle that were against everything. And I came to realize that the religious world that I spent just enough years in was making a point, but they weren't really making a difference. They were preaching against stuff and boycotting stuff and all that, and they were really good at making a point, but from what I could see, they weren't really making a difference, and it is always easier to make a point than it is to make a difference. Every parent knows this. You have sat down with your kids and you have said, okay, you look me right in the eye, give me your undivided attention, and blah, 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 blah. And now you go to your room and you think about that take off to their room, and you can just picture them in there sitting on the edge of their bed with their heads down, thinking about the wisdom of mom and dad, probably on their knees thanking God for their wise parents. <laughs> and act, you know, they're in there playing with their toys, and they're playing video games, and they're texting their friends. And as a parent, you felt so good because you made your point, and you're like, yeah, I told him, I told her. You know, I didn't back down. I made my point. 
then you can't understand why your kids don't change. Because telling you you're wrong is different than guiding you to do something different. Trying to convince you you're wrong is different from equipping you to do what is right. Making you feel guilty for what I think you're doing wrong is different from instructing you in how to do right. Making a point is so easy. Especially if you get to wear one of these every couple of weeks and you get to stand behind here and you get to have people sit in rows and looking at you and mostly staying awake and you get to have stacks of CDs that you can give to everybody you meet on the street, you know. It's, uh, man, it's fun to get a bunch of people who agree with you, get them all together and make a point. But it's very, very difficult to make a difference. So as a church and as leaders in this church, we decided very early on that we didn't want to be a point-making church. We wanted to be a difference-making church. And to make a difference requires a completely different strategy. Making a difference takes, number one, far longer to accomplish. Making a difference is sometimes confusing. And we realized a long time ago that it would be easy to make a point. There are plenty of churches that just kind of sit back and throw hand grenades out into culture and make their point. But we decided we didn't want to take that approach. We want to be a church that really genuinely makes a difference. And when you read the book of Acts and when you read the epistles, we're basically given a roadmap of how to make a difference as a church. I mean, and they nailed it. I mean, they pulled it off. Within 300 years of the crucifixion, the Roman Empire embraced Christianity. The early Christians basically toppled an empire in terms of ideology. And the way they did it was not by making a point. Because as Christians, they had no platform. They had no leverage. They had very little organization. And in their story, we find the answer to how to bring about cultural change. And the Lord Jesus and the Apostle Paul constantly leaned relationally in the direction of those they disagreed with most. They constantly leaned relationally in the direction of those they disagreed with most. In other words, they were constantly building relational bridges to the people they wanted to influence. There's a great example in Acts chapter 17. One day the Apostle Paul is in Athens, and he's killing some time waiting for a meeting, and so he's walking around seeing the sights. And he notices there are all kinds of these, these idols to all these different gods, because this is, uh, there's this, this pantheon of Greek gods, and Athens is a very spiritual city. And he notices all these idols to all these gods. And think about this. Paul is an educated Jewish man raised as a Jewish boy in the Jewish scriptures. And the predominant law in Judaism is don't have any idols. Don't make any images. So here's the Apostle Paul walking around in a city full of images of false gods. So what would have been the easiest sermon to preach? I mean, the easiest sermon to preach would have been to preach against idolatry. I mean, look at all the visual aids he had. And he would have been exactly right. But he would have made no difference. And he was smart enough to know that I'm not here to make a point. I'm here to make a difference. So he did this brilliant thing, and he found this altar that didn't have an image on it. And the altar was dedicated to the unknown God. And the Athenians, see, they didn't want to offend any of the gods, so they thought with all of these idols and altars all over the place, we might have left one out, so let's have an empty altar, and we can just have all the bases covered, and we'll dedicate that to the unknown God. And that's how they thought. So Paul says this in Acts chapter 17. He says, people of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. So common ground, I'm religious too. We have something in common. I'm a very devout religious person too. I would like to talk to you about this particular God. And guess what he does? He doesn't preach against idolatry. 
he preaches about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And at the end of his message, most people said, well, this is ridiculous. And, but a handful said, interesting. We'd like to come back tomorrow and we'd like to hear more. He didn't position himself against anything. He positioned himself relationally. He leaned into the people who otherwise disagreed with him the most. And consequently, the thing that you notice when you, when you look at Jesus and Paul, they were constantly at odds with the religious leaders of their day. This is so important if you attend Faith Community Fellowship. If you had sat the Apostle Paul down with the Pharisees and had a quiz about theology, their theology would have matched up almost perfectly. They all agreed that there was one God. They all agreed that everything existed was, that existed was created by that one God. They all agreed on the moral authority of the Scripture. You could go right down the line. They agreed on just about everything theologically, but they were constantly bumping heads over their approach because their approaches were so different. And ultimately, it was the Pharisees who had Jesus crucified and arrested. But if there had been a theology test, people on the outside would have seen very little difference between them. So because their approaches were so different, they were always butting heads with the people that they disagreed with um, on approach, but agreed with on theology. So Jesus and the Apostle Paul, this is, this is kind of where I want to start today, I want to give you a list of things that we ought to be intentional about. And I think the first thing is that Jesus and the Apostle Paul, they were not concerned about guilt by association. This is not a parenting strategy either, just to make that clear, okay? This isn't go home and tell your kids, you know, I don't care who you hang out with, it doesn't really make a difference. It's not a parenting strategy. Listen carefully. Neither Jesus nor the Apostle Paul were concerned about guilt by association. Let me ask you a question. In the New Testament, who was the group that was fanatically concerned about guilt by association. You say it out loud. Pharisees. Think about it. These religious leaders, they arrested Jesus, they tried him illegally, they paid false witnesses, they beat him, and they took him to Pilate. And Pilate says, come on in, let's talk. And they say, oh, no, 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 no. We can't go in your house. We'll become ceremonially unclean. Yeah, exactly, hypocrites. They're like, Pilate, if anyone sees us go into your house, I mean, we can't do that. You know, but you never, you never find Jesus worried about guilt by association. In fact, what was Jesus' reputation on the other hand? What did, what did they say about Jesus? That he was a friend of sinners. His reputation was he spends all his time with the people that he shouldn't be spending time with. They're sinners. And we think, you know, Jesus, by hanging out with those tax crooks and the prostitutes and other sinners, are you saying it's okay to cheat people on their taxes? Are you saying it's okay to be a prostitute or use the services of a prostitute? Are you saying it's okay to engage in all these activities that these sinners engage in every day? Is that what you're saying, Jesus? To which Jesus, I think, would say, well, sin will ultimately nail me to a cross. Sin will ultimately cost me my life. Sin will ultimately kill me. So what do you mean am I condoning sin? I'm not condoning sin. I'm trying to reach sinners. So while you sit safely back in your little congregation of people who all believe the same thing and sing the same songs and all get along and agree about everything, he says, I'm out here actually trying to engage the people who need this message, and I could care less who criticizes me for who I spend time with. Jesus was never concerned about guilt by association. In fact, Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends, at one point he was actually chastised by Paul because after Jesus left, he started giving in to pressure. And when he was with the Jews, he acted like he didn't hang out with the Gentiles. And when he was with the Gentiles, he acted like he didn't hang out with the Jews. And in Galatians 2, the apostle Paul corrected him on this, and he called him a hypocrite. Because Peter was afraid that they, what somebody, what one group of people might think, 
about him if he hung out with another group of people. Here's another thing about Jesus and Paul, was that they refused to be dragged into debates that distracted them from the primary issue. Jesus is walking along one day, and the Pharisees say, Hey, Jesus, uh, we got a question. How, how do you, what do you think about us paying our taxes? What do you think about us paying taxes to Caesar? Do you think we should pay taxes? And Jesus is like, I'm not here to solve the tax problem. I'm not an accountant. I'm not a tax attorney. Anybody got a coin? The Pharisees are digging in their pockets, and somebody brings him a coin, and Jesus says, whose face is on that? Oh, well, Jesus, that's Caesar, you know, or so we're told. We've never seen him, but it's Caesar. And he says, and give to Caesar what's Caesar's, and give to God what's God's. See ya. And one day he's walking along in Matthew 21, and he's, he's walking along, and the Pharisees say, hey, Jesus, we got a question for you. All the stuff you're teaching, all this new stuff and all this new teaching, by whose authority are you teaching? Trick question. And Jesus says, well, I'll answer you when you answer me. By what authority did John the baptizer baptize? So they get in a huddle and they're like, okay, uh, if we say it was God's authority, and he's going to say, well, why didn't you let John baptize you? And if we say it wasn't God's authority, then the people are going to be mad at us because John's like a folk hero to these people. So these courageous Pharisees come back to Jesus and they say, we don't really know. And Jesus says, and I'm not going to tell you either. And he walked away. (laughs) Read it. Matthew 21. This is important. Did Jesus know by whose authority he did what he did and he taught what he taught? Of course he knew. But here's what else he knew. And we, he knew that we lose sight of this sometimes. That sometimes there are questions you should never answer. You should, there, sometimes there are questions you should never answer based on who's asking them, when they're asking, and where they're asking. It's not that you don't know the answer. In fact, if you're overly certain of the answer, that might be a sign to you right there that you probably shouldn't answer. There are just some things, some discussions you shouldn't get involved in. And Jesus understood this, and he says, I will not be dragged into issues that are not central to why I'm here. Oh, here's something else about Jesus and Paul. They didn't judge non-Christians. They didn't judge non-Christians for behaving like non-Christians. In the last few weeks, I've done some teaching on judging, and I feel like we could just stay there for like a year because there's so much confusion about this. Oh, well, I'm a Christian. Jesus said, don't judge. That's not what he said. Well, Paul said, Jesus and Paul didn't judge non-Christians for behaving like non-Christians. And the church as a body is an expert at the opposite of this, okay? I mean, through the ages, the church has lost its influence and culture to the degree that they have judged the behavior of people who aren't even believers. I mean, think this through logically. The church has its greatest influence when the church polices its own behavior, and understands that people who have not embraced Christianity, why in the world would we expect them to act like Christians? So Paul said, he said, what business do you have of judging outsiders? And I love that term. What business do you have of judging outsiders? None. Well, why in the world will we eat, why in the world will we hold people who aren't even Christians accountable to a set of rules and principles and values that they have never subscribed to, be, to begin with? The church shines the brightest when Christians act like Christians. It's a novel idea. And when Christians stop policing their, start policing their own behavior. Because when Christians start policing their own behavior, there's a word, there's a word for this that Jesus used and Paul used. When Christians stop policing our own behavior and we start policing everyone else's, 
you know, you know what Jesus and Paul called that? It's, it's a word that starts with H, has four syllables. Hypocrisy. And people see it a mile off. And Paul didn't go into Athens and go, oh, I can't believe they're worshiping these idols. Well, of course they're worshiping idols. They're not Jewish. They're not Christians. He never expected non-Christians to act like Christians. This is something that gets the church in trouble generation after generation. If it isn't corrected, it renders us irrelevant and ineffective. And that's why our approach to bringing about change has to start with relationships. That's why we can't be content to just sit back and make our points. Here's something that Jesus said that just kind of underscores the examples I've already given. Here's what Jesus said, talking to his followers. And some of you have memorized these verses, and I talk about them a lot. Probably, I probably reference these three verses more than any other verses in Scripture in Matthew 5, verse 14. Jesus said, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its own stand. It gives light to everyone in the house. Verse 16, In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Good deeds, not bumper stickers. Good deeds, not points in a sermon. Good deeds, not rantings on Facebook. Jesus said, you want to make a difference? Do you want to be a light that attracts people and brings them to their Heavenly Father? You have to live your life in such a way that they see your good deeds. And after they see your good deeds, they begin to connect the dots and they glorify your Father in Heaven. He's saying, look, you need to conduct your morality and your marriage, and your relationships, your dating relationships, your relationships with the opposite sex, your money, the way you spend it, the way you give it, the way you complain about it, your job, your education. We need to do all that in such a way that people living in darkness look at you and look at us and say, I'm not so sure I want to be one of them, but they're good people. I'm not sure I want to be one of them, but I like to hire a bunch of them. I'm not sure I want to be one of them, but I hope my daughter finds one to marry because they're so honest and moral and committed and they keep their promises. He says, live your life in such a way that you make your point by making a difference. And that's the point. And you might be thinking, well, that, that's, that's nice, Jesus, but what about righteousness, and what about truth, and what about drawing a line in the sand, and what about teaching the commands of God? This next verse, which I didn't put on the screen, by the way, verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. This isn't either or. This is both and. You don't, you don't have to throw moral and ethical and behavioral grenades out into culture and tell people how to live their lives. You just, you just get it right. You get it right. And you'll be like a light in the dark place. You will be attractional. Here's how the Apostle Paul said it in Colossians chapter 4, verse 5. He said, Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. In other words, every time you have an opportunity to influence someone, every time you have an opportunity to engage in a conversation around the issue of faith, be wise in the way that you conduct that conversation. He continues, hang on, verse 6, he says, Let your conversation be always full of what? Full of, okay, it's a, let your conversation be always what? Full. What's that word mean? Full, exactly. Full means full, full. 
Overflowing, full. Full of grace. Let your conversation with outsiders be always full of grace. Oh, but what about righteousness, Jesus? Hey, Paul, what about holiness? What about morality? I got some things to say about that. What about taking America back? Hang on. Let your conversation be full of grace. There needs to be so much grace in your conversations that it feels like it's too much. And seasoned with salt. You know what we've done in conservative evangelical churches in America for the past 50 plus years? We have had conversations full of salt sprinkled with grace. You're wrong. You're doing it wrong. You're making the wrong choices. Your moral standards are wrong. Your political positions are wrong. Your theology is wrong. But if you love Jesus and ask for forgiveness, you can join us and be a part of us. Great. That's how you make a point. It's not how you make a lasting difference. I'm guessing you became a Christian because somebody flooded you with grace. And there was something attractive. And you weren't sure you bought into all of it because, you know, there was that salt thing. But there was just so much grace. And you didn't feel judged. You felt loved. And the rest of the verse says, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Here's something we don't talk much about. <clears throat> After Paul died, he was beheaded, he was beheaded by Nero. And, of course, Jesus is gone. And the next 300 years of Christianity, the Christians started to, started to get this right. During this time, there were three major plagues in the Roman Empire. And during these plagues, the rich people left the cities first. Then the pagan priests and the poor people were left to die. And the Christians, they stayed. And they took care of their families. And with just a little bit of care, they began to nurture many of them back to help while the pagans left their family members behind and they took off because they were so afraid of death. But these Christians, they didn't fear death and dying. They weren't afraid to die. So they stayed behind and cared for their own families. And then they began, once they were healthy, began to care for their unbelieving neighbors who had been abandoned and left to die. And in light, the, light, the light of these early Christians shown in such a way that thousands and thousands of these unbelieving pagans who've been left behind to die believed in Jesus. And in this diseased environment, Christianity rose to the occasion. And these Christians were the light of the world and made a huge, huge difference. And we know from world history, by the time Constantine came along, in 313 AD, he embraced Christianity. There's a lot of debate about whether that was... You know, like a lot of debate among whom, I don't know, some people, about whether it was sincere or whether it was political maneuvering or how it came to be. But at the end of the day, persecution of Christians in the Roman Empire stopped. And Rome became the center of Christianity. Well, a couple emperors later came an emperor named Julian. And Julian decided that they'd had enough of Christianity. They needed to take the empire back to its roots. They needed to go back to its pagan roots. So Emperor Julian decides to reinstitute paganism in Rome, and he met with some resistance, and he ran into some trouble. And the trouble was Christianity had so much momentum, and Christianity was known for its generosity. So when he built some new temples and he installed some new pagan priests, it just didn't gain any traction. And we actually have a fragment of a letter that he wrote where he talked about this. So here we are sometime between the year 355 and 365, Emperor Julian writing about the fact that we can't get this return to paganism going because of all these crazy Christians. Listen carefully to this observation. Listen. He says, recent Christian growth is caused by their moral character, even if pretended, and by their benevolence towards strangers. He's saying, we've got a problem here. 
The Christians are too moral. They're so moral, they do all the right things. And it's hard for us to compete with that. And I'm not so sure it's sincere. I just think that maybe they're good at pretending because nobody's that good. He goes on. He says, I think that when the poor happen to be neglected and overlooked by the priests, he's talking about his own pagan priests, the impious Galileans observed this and devoted themselves to benevolence. Oh, but it gets worse. The impious Galileans support not only their poor, but ours as well. It's like, how are we... How are we going to compete with that? The Christians keep taking in children. The Christians keep taking care of the poor. The Christians keep giving generously. No one's going to join our movement when they've got that as an option. And he says, everyone can see that our people lack aid from us, but they're getting help from these Galileans. You know why Rome finally embraced Christianity? It wasn't because of the preaching. It wasn't because of bumper stickers. It wasn't because of boycotts. It wasn't because Christians got together and, man, we made a point. They decided, let's just do what Jesus did and let's just do what Jesus told us to do and let's just be the light and let's be concerned about our own behavior and let's be moral and let's be serious about what the Bible has to say about the nature of our relationships and let's honor marriage by having a better marriage and let's be more generous and let's be more benevolent and let's be more kind and more caring. Let's just get this right and we'll be a light in a dark place. And that's exactly what happened in Rome. And you know what? If you love this country and there's something in you that just wants to take it back. Sorry, I can't say it without doing that. That's fine. But this is how you do it. As believers, as the body of Christ, as the church, we have the opportunity. We have an opportunity and we have a responsibility not to be content with making points and getting everybody who agrees with me to clap for me. And, you know, wait till I get to say my piece on that. Facebook, man, I'll get more likes and you to be unbelievable. No, we're here to make a difference. You know how we make a difference? Love one another. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love one another. Love your enemy. So if you're wondering why, as a church, we don't get involved in the latest campaign, if you're wondering why we don't get involved in the latest political battle, if you're wondering why we don't promote political causes or, spirit or political watchdog organizations, if you're wondering why we never invite anyone in here to talk about the cultural issues of the day, we've just determined that to take a stand on anything and everything that church members and other churches and other pastors and even the public expect us to take a stand on is neither necessary nor wise. That's our explanation. It's why we don't hang posters about current events. It's why we don't post campaign signs on our property. It's why we don't invite elected officials other than our pastor or political operatives to speak here. Oh, it makes a point. But we just don't believe in light of our mission that it makes any difference. We're not going to fear guilt by association. In this church, you'll find Democrats, raise your hand, no, I'm kidding, Democrats and Republicans and Libertarians and Independents, you'll find some good people, you'll find some crazy people, you'll find addicts, you'll find people who are sexually immoral, and we're not going to fear this. I've actually received emails from people outside our church saying, do you know so-and-so and this and that, and they have this going on, and they're immoral? We're not going to fear that. We will engage in meaningful relationships. And into these relationships, we will make every effort at the Holy Spirit's promptings to introduce the good news of Jesus Christ. 
and the difference that he's made in our lives. We aren't afraid to spend time with people who aren't exactly like us. We're not even afraid to involve people here in this ministry who don't agree with everything we believe. So we're not going to fear guilt by association. Jesus didn't, neither did the Apostle Paul. We are the hands and feet of Jesus in our culture. And on the surface, it might appear inconsistent to other Christians, you know, because Jesus had dinner with Pharisees and he had dinner with corrupt tax collectors and prostitutes. So it's like, whose side are you on, Jesus? And he's like, everybody. The other thing that we've tried to stay away from, we're going to try to be consistent on this one, is that we're not going to police the behavior of people who don't believe what we believe. There are people in this town that have accused us, mostly me, of being soft on sin. These are people who haven't quite understood, don't quite understand how social media works, that when you post something, other people can read it. So I know what they've said, which is kind of cool. And I never comment. I just tuck it away. But there are people in this town who have accused us and me of being soft on sin because under the impression that like, I don't preach against certain sins, And to that, I would say they are right on that because I don't preach against whatever. I prefer to, my calling is to preach the Bible as it is. And that's what we try to do here. And since the majority of our listeners on a Sunday morning are, in fact, followers of Jesus Christ, we'll address our own sin. But I'm not going to waste your time and mine hammering on the sin of people who don't believe like we do, who don't have any kind of relationship with God, who don't view the Bible the same way that we do, who aren't even in the room with us and thus aren't hearing what we have to say anyway. I've never understood the approach of standing in a pulpit, ripping people on the outside while people on the inside cheer the preacher on. I don't get that. Instead, let's focus on helping each other who are here be the light in the darkness. Can we just focus on that for a while? Sometimes you'll hear me make a disclaimer in my teaching. I might say something like, if you aren't a Christian or if you aren't a Christ follower, you get a pass. This isn't really for you. Don't worry about this right now. Because sometimes there are people in this room, I hope every Sunday there are people in this room who aren't believers. They, they may be spiritual seekers. Maybe they don't know what they believe about the whole thing. But the truth of the matter is this, that so much of the teachings of Jesus and the instructions, especially in the New Testament, are meant for followers of Christ. And in fact, it's our relationship with our Heavenly Father through His Son that gives us the foundation and the framework with which to even begin to obey Him. We're just so dependent on the Holy Spirit for that. And to expect a non-believer to follow the teachings of Scripture and these hard truths that Jesus introduced without the aid of the Holy Spirit in their lives, it doesn't even make sense to me. I think if we can get this right, I think if we can get this right, we're truly light in the darkness. Our influence as individuals, as families, as a church will continue to spread, not because we're trying to make a point, but not because we're trying to influence somebody. It's just going to happen because the light of Christ in us will point people to our Heavenly Father. That's what Jesus said. And when political and cultural issues interface with biblical teaching, we're going to talk about that. I attempted to do it last week, leading into the 4th of July. We're not trying to dodge difficult topics. When the Scripture is clear, we want to be clear. We want to be clear when it lines up with Republicans, and we want to be clear when it lines up with Democrats, and we want to be clear when it doesn't line up with anybody. To the best of our ability, when something is scriptural and it conflicts with something in culture, we're not going to shy away from the truth. But here's what we've always tried to do. We want to say, here's what's going on in culture. Here's what the scripture teaches. And Christian Christ follower, here's how you should respond. And don't try to impose this on your friends who aren't Christians. 
And here's a prediction. We're not always going to get this right. We're not. It'd be really easy to either to be either very conservative or very liberal or very political, you know, and just, you know, chase everyone off who doesn't agree with us on things. It'd be really easy to do. It'd be easy to kind of put our heads in the sand and just teach some nice stories about the Bible and then pat each other on the back and ignore all the political and cultural implications because we just want to be so biblical. That would be easy to do too. But to do what we're trying to do, to, to, to try to make a difference in the lives of individuals and families and in our community, it's difficult and it's messy. And at Faith Community, we don't have a lot of policies. In fact, one of our policies is that we don't have a lot of policies. And it's, in the early in the first year of this church, we wrote position papers as we were trying to figure out what this was going to look like. And we wrote a paper on that, a position paper, that we will not be governed by policies. Instead, we're going to have lots of conversations. It's easy to have policies. Oh, I can write policies. You know, and when people ask questions, you just send them an email. They're attached to the policy. Read it. No, nope, not going to do that. But in the absence of policies, things get messy and they get time-consuming and they get extraordinarily relational. And that's what we're shooting for because we think that's what Jesus did. So I say let's keep walking toward messes. Let's walk in that direction. Because all of us were a mess, are a mess, or will be a mess. Okay? And if Jesus extended his arms for our mess, the least we can do is roll up our sleeves and get involved in the other people's messes. Even if religious people don't understand, even if we appear to be inconsistent, at the end of the day, that's what we've been called to do. So I would say thanks for hanging with us. We don't always get this right. We usually know why we're doing what we're doing, but we don't always know how to do it. So sometimes it's inconsistent. Sometimes it's confusing. Sometimes we just don't get it right. But would you pray, especially in as this, the political scene intensifies in our state in the next couple of months, as it does every other year, pray that we would see opportunities to build bridges relationally. Because the mission of the church is not to return America to 18th century colonial American morality, okay? Because, ladies, you wouldn't even get a vote on that anyway. Listen, the mission of the church is that the world would know that God has done something in the world. That he sent his son into the world. He is Jesus, the Christ, the promised Messiah. He died on the cross. He was buried. He rose from the dead and was seen. And we know when that message grips the heart and soul of an individual, begins to change a person, not from the outside in, not from their political views to something else, from their behavior to something else. It begins to change them from the inside out and they become more compassionate and they become more generous, and they become more loving, and they become more consistent in their ethics and their morality because we begin to change from the inside out. That's the message. That's the gospel. And that's what changed the world. That's what will continue to change the world as long as the church doesn't get sidetracked, as long as we are laser-focused on what our central purpose is. So church, let's be a light. Let's give generously. I love the fact that our Relay for Life team is one of the top fundraising teams in our area. We're number two. We're number two in the whole, the whole county. Yeah, I know. It's amazing. We went over 8,500 this, this week. Let's, 
be generous. Let's, let's leverage our relationships for the sake of others. Let's give generously. Let's serve unselfishly. I'm so proud of you for your service at Loaves and Fishes. Fresh off of Relay, and we put, it's not, Relay's not just a one-time event. It's like one event after another leading up to the event for weeks, and over 130 people from our church participated this year. We raised 80, over $8,500. We do all that, and it's intense, and it, you know, you're a week recovering from it, and then you jump right into Loaves and Fishes. We've got over 20 volunteers staff in the pantry three days a week for this month, and you're serving with, the, with our friends from Family Bible, and we're doing something together for the sake of our community, and you're serving people you don't even know, and people that you may not agree with on political issues, and people that you may not even like, and some of you are serving, some of you are serving people that you might think shouldn't even be in this country and you're serving them as the hands and feet of Jesus. So let's be a light. Let's be a light that's confounding to people. That people will buzz around us like moths and June bugs, you know, that they'll be just so attracted to the light that they think, I don't know what's going on there, but I've got to land there. Let's be June bugs. No, wait, that's not what I said. Let's make sure our conversation is so full of grace that even Christians around us wonder where we stand on the hot-button issues. I love messing with other Christians and stuff like that. I can tell when they're thinking, you know, you're just too accepting of their behavior. I'm like, well, thankfully, I don't answer to you. For the record, I don't know about accepting the behavior. I just want to accept the individual, that person creating God's image, that person for whom Jesus died. So let's let our conversations and our whole lifestyle be so full of grace. And a little bit of salt sprinkled in. Do you know what will happen? Oh, you'll, you'll make a point. You'll make a point because we're making a difference. That's what Jesus modeled. That's what Paul taught us. That's what the early church did. That's the opportunity and the responsibility we've been given. I'm going to ask the band to come to the stage, and we're going to, we're going to transition into some music. And, and while they're coming, I'm going to pray. So can we pray together? Father, thank you so much for the example and the teachings of Jesus and the Apostle Paul who um, really put flesh to these teachings. Um, Thank you that we're given clear examples and clear instructions on what it really means to be a light in a dark place, what it means to love one another, to love our neighbors as ourselves, to love our enemies, those people we disagree with, the people that we think are out to get us. Father, I pray that those verses in Colossians would be so true of us that our conversations, our lifestyles would be so full of grace, full to the top and overflowing, almost more than anybody can take, seasoned with salt, with truth, that people on the outside would be drawn to our Heavenly Father. We want to make a difference for the kingdom of God. That's our desire. We believe that's the mission you've given us. God, forgive us when we don't get it right. Forgive us when we don't. We haven't put enough thought and prayer into the process. When we get a little lazy because it's easy and we take a different path. We ask for your forgiveness for that. God, I pray that we would just be 
committed to remaining laser focused on making a difference. Let the point lie with someone else, but we want to make a difference in the lives of people. Not just so that we can feel good about ourselves, we can pat ourselves on the back so that people can look at us and think, oh, aren't they good? But that through our good deeds that our Heavenly Father would be glorified. For all this, we are truly thankful in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand together.